Hello, I'm Anoush Gristana. As a subscriber to some of The Guardian's other podcasts, we thought you'd be interested in listening to our new daily podcast, Today in Focus. This episode is about the People's Vote campaign. Every day we'll be going behind the headlines to bring you a deeper understanding of the news. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Today, Guardian columnist Hadley Freeman asks what's behind the growing threat to Jews in America. But first, as EU negotiations reach a crunch point, who are the people trying to stop Brexit? And is there any chance they'll succeed? That's the sound of 700,000 people marching through central London. They're all here to campaign for a second referendum on EU membership, a people's vote. It's the biggest demonstration in Britain since the Iraq war. At the front, there's the familiar group of young people behind the rope, screaming into a megaphone. Behind them, a middle-aged couple wearing woolly jumpers and hiking boots are walking along, eating sandwiches out of a Tupperware box. A man called Joe Tricky is resting against a wall at the side of the street with a sign telling people that he's 83 today. People keep stopping and wishing him a happy birthday. When you're standing in the middle of all this, the protests can feel pretty organic, like something that just happened. But it's actually meticulously organised. So we're just, we're just coming, you know, we're just coming to the front here. That's James McGrory. I remember him as a Lib Dem press officer years ago. How did he end up here? organising all of this as the director of the People's Vote campaign. It is an absolutely glorious day. To say it's mid-October, not a cloud in the sky. In fact, all you can see in the sky is a couple of helicopters uh, uh, looking at these massive, massive crowds. A lot of people have brought their dogs today, uh, as, you can, as you can hear. Uh, there's a whole section of the march called the Wooferendum. You know, an James NHS knows how to spin. But he's really excited about this one. Yeah, I mean, it takes, it takes quite, a bit, quite a bit of work. I'd like to say, you know, we, we, we sort of scraped it together. In his but, own words, you know, he's wired, talking faster than usual. Speakers, the putting on of the rally itself in Parliament, obviously we'll have to build a stage. You know, all the members of the team have got their own individual job today. And to see them looking really happy and positive, for me, as, you know, the director is, is, as, you know, is as rewarding as anything else that I might see today, to be honest. The day after the Brexit vote in 2016, the idea of another referendum would have sounded completely ridiculous. Not even the most die-hard Remainers were suggesting it in public. James certainly wasn't. But nearly two and a half years later, with difficult negotiations in Brussels, the idea of a new vote is being taken pretty seriously. And there's a group of people trying very hard to make it happen. From The Guardian, I'm Anoush Gharistana. Today in Focus, as talks gear up again this week, we take a look inside the campaign to stop Brexit. Everything went well. You know, even, even the weather. Is God a remainer? That's what you've got to ask yourself when, when, when there's weather <laughs> After like the that. march, James came into our studio to explain his strategy for getting a referendum on the final Brexit deal. To understand it, he says you have to go back to June the 23rd, 2016, when he was in charge of Remain headquarters with his colleague Joe Carberry. I probably hadn't prepared for it in the best way if you wanted to get a realistic assessment of what the country was thinking. 
most people, myself included, went out and campaigned. So I spent my Thursday morning or whatever it was um, knocking on doors near where I live in North London. And I've never known a reception like it on the doorstep. I was wearing, you know, my Remain gear. I clearly had a clipboard so people knew what, I, knew what I was doing. People were stopping their cars, beeping their horns at me. It was a sort of carnival atmosphere. But, you know, in this North is London. In, well, in the, you know, Hornsey and Wood Green, which is, where, <laughs> which is where I live, which turned out about 80% to Remain. So I went into the office really, really buoyed up. And I thought we would win. I didn't think we'd win by a huge margin, maybe 52, 48, but I thought we would win. All the public polls that were published the night before had us narrowly in front. Our own internal polling had us narrowly in front. So things were looking pretty good. Then you remember Farage concedes. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I made a fall off. But either way... And to be honest, at that, at that stage, Joe and I thought we could be out of here and in the pub by two at half two three because it really did look like we were we were we were on to a good thing and, and then the first oh, results to, start coming I'll come in. back to you if i may we've got a result sure. from sunderland the total number of votes cast in favor of remain was fifty-one thousand nine hundred and thirty. the total number of votes cast in favor of leave was eighty-two thousand. My goodness, Newcastle and Sunderland, David. Don't anyone go to bed yet. <laughs> You'll get people who say, well, as soon as Sunderland came in, I knew it was, I knew it was over. Or as soon as Newcastle came in, I knew it was over. That, that is just for the people in the room, myself and Joe and other people that we were talking to on the Remain campaign. That's just not true. What was true is that we had a model that told us what we needed to get them to get 50% or more of the vote, i.e. to i.e. to win. And the, that was broken down by every every seat. And what was worrying and was true from the first result onwards was that in pretty much every seat we were half a point, one point behind. Basildon, we have the result. So there's the percentage. Let's just see so that. Hartley, 69, really 31. Really storming. North 66.9%. The problem was that those results kept coming in. And they kept coming in half a, half a percent, one percent behind. So that pattern was happened again and again and again. And then you, after an hour, hour and a half of that, you really do start thinking, we're in big trouble here. There's nothing you can do about it. You're, you've lost. That's politics. You've gone to the electorate and, and, and they've not endorsed what you're, what you're arguing. The worst thing I've ever had to do professionally was... Um, no, not all of the people in the office had access to the model and were talking to other senior staff, you know, like myself and Joe were. And we had to gather the the team who were in there, sort of 15 or so, and they were, you know, invariably young people who'd never done this before, gather them into a sort of small, re you know, tiny, airless, dark meeting room at the back of the office and explain to them before they had to hear it on the television that we'd lost and that all the hard work you'd seen these kids... You know, bury themselves for 18 hours a day for months and you had to tell them that everything that they had worked for and to be honest everything that they believed in was not gonna not gonna happen I've been on the receiving end of that speech before but to actually have to give one is a brutal brutal experience that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy
what we decided to do was you know close down the office and I won't pretend we didn't do other, other anything other than Google you know what's the closest pub that's open at five o'clock in, in the morning because if you're going to lose uh, you might as well make sure the office is tidy and then go and really get hammered. We found one that ironically was called The Hope. So you've, you've been hammered. Mm-hmm. You've fallen asleep in The Hope. You've fallen asleep in a pub. <laughs> and when do you go back to the Remain office and, and what happens next? So it's, it's weird. You go into the office on Monday morning and there's actually no work to do. And then you, you know, your instinctive human reaction is to think, what are we going to do next? And you had a choice with the Remain campaign. You could either just wind the company up and throw all the data that you'd gathered in a virtual bin somewhere, or you could decide to do something with it. So from that, we decided to, to set up Open Britain, which uh, used, uh, you know, emailed uh, people and used the social media assets that the Remain campaign had, 570,000 followers on Facebook, 70-odd thousand on Twitter, uh, and said, look, we're going to argue for uh, what we believe to be the only, well, the, you know, it's still not as good as European Union membership by any stretch of the imagination, but we believe the least damaging uh, way you could leave the European Union, which was uh, membership of the single market and, and the customs union. We spent our first six or so months at Open Britain from our launch at the end of, uh, end of August plodding along. We got a little bit of political support. We got a few, you know, decent media hits. We sort of put ourselves vaguely on the kind of Westminster bubble. But there was a sense that Theresa May was riding really high. And the people forget, I think, just the government really seemed to have the wind in their sails. And the Brexit Brexit seemed like it was going to be straightforward and that, that Theresa May was going to negotiate a great deal for Britain. And it was all going to be done and dusted within a couple of years. And then she called the general election, and that changed everything. I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. There should be unity here in Westminster, but instead there is division. The country and if I'm honest with you, my first reaction when she called the general election was, we could be finished here. If Theresa May ends up getting a majority of 100, it doesn't matter what we campaign for, it doesn't matter what we say, it doesn't really matter what other pro-Europeans say, because she'll be able to ram through any vision of Brexit she wishes to impose on the country with that size of majority. Good evening and welcome to the BBC Election Centre. I was Tonight put up by the party, the by the Liberal Democrats, to do a few media interviews. And I'll remember this for the rest of my life. I was slightly late getting to a new broadcasting house. And I turned the corner after getting off, because I've come all the way from Sheffield, got off the tube at Oxford Circus and turned the corner. There are just over 20 seconds to go till Big Ben strikes 10. Then I'll be able to reveal the results of the BBC, ITV... Just and as Sky they put joined. the exit poll onto the side now, of new broadcasting house. The Conservatives are the largest party Note, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. And I thought, wow, you know, that is better than you know, it was better than I could ever possibly have wished for. And frankly, it made a nice change for me to have an election night where I was suddenly thinking this could be so much better than I ever expected. A hung parliament where Theresa May doesn't have a majority means possibly anything is possible in the Brexit debate. So I walked into New Broadcasting House with a massive spring in my step. The Prime Minister called this election because she wanted as she put it, certainty and stability. And this doesn't seem at this stage to look like certainty and stability. It could still be... So after the general election campaign, 
you essentially step up a gear. We're getting loads of emails from you in our inbox, yeah. us political journalists. Yeah. And then one day, suddenly I stop getting emails from Open Britain and I start getting emails from the People's Vote. So, so do you essentially morph into the People's Vote? It's slightly different, uh, and it was a little bit of time. It was quite a long time in the making this. You can't just do this overnight. So from about the turn of the year, uh, we were planning for this. Uh, the People's Vote Campaign is an umbrella organisation. Open Britain are one of nine groups that, that came together. And not only did we came to come together with a joint campaign, so joint objectives, joint messaging and all the rest of it, we actually moved into one set of offices in, in Millbank Tower. And as a journalist, it looks to me as if you've got three parts to your strategy. So first, a kind of parallel diplomacy effort, political grandees, Blair, Mandelson, your old boss, Nick Clegg, lobbying in Brussels. We're going to see Michel Barnier and a few other people in the European Commission. Are you here to stop Brexit? (laughs) If only we're that easy. No, no, no. Then second, a shadow whipping operation in Westminster to help win critical votes. Theresa May has suffered her first Commons defeat over Brexit, losing by just four votes. MPs have forced the government to guarantee that Parliament will have a meaningful vote on any final and Then the grassroots campaign, as we saw on the march. Is that three-pronged approach a fair way of looking at it? Uh, it's broadly uh, right. Uh, we have three prongs. We have a, a you know f- information gathering in Europe. I wouldn't call it a shadow whipping operation in 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 politics. It's much more at that stage in particular, but still now about having public support. But those people were forcing Theresa May to lose votes in Parliament. I mean, you must have had to organise that. Well, a lot of it. No, I mean, in all with all due respect, they you know they organise themselves. What we do provide is briefing what we do provide is political uh, uh, advice we also have this incredible network of grassroots activists the general election of 2017 was a real shot in the arm for everybody in the same way it was a shot in the arm for us at hq thinking this is game on same for the activists everybody i think on our side of the argument realized here that this wasn't a done deal that Theresa May wasn't just going to impose this hard Brexit vision on the country. There was a real fight to be had. And in any campaign, once you've got a bit of momentum, you can become quite hard to stop. But come on, James. I mean, you're selling this as a grassroots operation. You called it the people's vote. But let's be honest, Peter Mandelson's on your board. Nick Clegg is someone you're close to who's been going out doing his diplomacy. I mean, you're organising speeches for Tony Blair. You're selling it as grassroots. Isn't it really an organisation of the old political elite? Oh, I could not uh, disagree with you more. This is the largest grassroots movement this country has seen in a long, long time. Of course we have politicians involved. We have politicians from all parties. We have people from no parties. We have uh, celebrities. We have business figures. We have trade union leaders. But you cannot sit there with a straight face and tell me that the young people that support our campaign, the students that support our campaign, the trade union members that support our campaign, the ordinary people who go out rain and shine every single weekend and take this argument directly into their local communities, the 700,000 people who are prepared to take to the streets to protest. This isn't the elite. This is the people. And I'm not only comfortable, I'm proud to be part of the People's Vote campaign. I, I had a feeling you might say that, James. <laughs> so 700,000 on the streets of London, 17 million voted for Brexit. A lot of people would say it's vote leave, who's basically representing them all 
working class voters across the country. Well, I just, again, I just, I just totally disagree. I think the idea that you are going to label a whole generation of people, there's a whole generation of kids out there saying, not in my name, who feel this is being foisted on them by, frankly, old, rich, white men. The idea that the elite are not Nigel Farage, they're not Boris Johnson, they're not Jacob Rees-Mogg, they're not large swathes of conservative backbenchers, and instead the elite are actually the young kids who come out and campaign for us. I think could not be further from the truth and I think it's 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 responsible for all of us not just in politics but in journalism to just challenge that lazy assumption okay okay but how do you actually practically get to a people's vote there are a number of different ways that you can you can get there and none really are viable without winning a vote or possibly multiple votes in parliament i.e getting majority in the house of commons if you're asking me for my what I think is probably the most likely route is that Theresa May either brings back a deal or doesn't, i.e. the no deal scenario, that is rejected then by Parliament. Well, what are the options in that scenario? They can try and seek to go back to the negotiating table, but time is limited and there's very little sign that the EU will just allow extension just so Britain can try and negotiate a better deal. They can choose to try and go to the country in a general election. They can just try again to ram it through Parliament. They can let the clock run down and crash out without a deal. Or you can have a people's vote. Now, there's five scenarios I've outlined for you there. And it seems to me that the people's vote is not only the most democratic, but it's also the most political vi- politically viable in a situation in which the deal has been rejected by our elected representatives. And if it gets accepted, what do you do? If they persuade a majority of our elected representatives in Parliament to back it and to back the legislation that uh, puts it into action, then I'm afraid we are. Uh, leaving the EU in in March 2019. And if anybody really doesn't like the thought of that, then join the People's Vote campaign and get stuck in. Yeah, but for all of that, we know that referendums are massively divisive. 2016 was really divisive and it's still divisive for society now. Aren't you just going to open up those old wounds? Uh, Look, it's something I think about every single day of my life. Am I doing the right thing for my country? But I honestly, honestly, honestly believe that the single most divisive thing you could do in this this country right now is promise people, particularly people in left-behind communities who feel that they weren't being listened to, being told a pack of lies in 2016 that are never going to be delivered. I refuse to see how that heals the country. What I think can bring the country together again is to say look, this is the actual Brexit on offer here. Are you sure you want it? If people vote leave again, I promise on my mother's life, I will walk away from this debate with a heavy heart and I will regret the decision for the rest of my life, but I'll walk away from the debate forever. James, thank you very much. Not at all, thank you. I really enjoyed that. You can keep up with all of The Guardian's Brexit coverage at theguardian.com. Next, in opinion... Hadley Freeman on Trump's role in the rise of anti-Semitism. Welcome back. Now today's opinion. Hadley Freeman responds to the horrific rise in anti-Semitism in the US, where there was recently a tragic shooting in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. I was at home with my kids making them dinner and I was just looking at my phone briefly and I saw it come up on Twitter and I literally just sat right down in a chair and sort of didn't move. It felt like a shock but not a surprise, I guess as people say. 
it felt almost like we'd been inevitably heading towards this, although at the same time it still felt unimaginable reading about 11 Jews being shot in a synagogue in America. Later that same day after this attack happened, Trump still went to a rally, and he said that he'd nearly canceled the rally, and there was a pause, and you could hear everyone thinking, oh, maybe he's going to say out of respect for these 11 people who were shot dead in a synagogue. But no, it's because he'd had to give a statement about what had happened, and it was in the rain and the wind, and as a result, he was having a really bad hair day. I mean, that sends a very strong message to any anti-Semites out there. It is not a condemnation of the loss of life. It is making a joke about it. I think a lot of people are more complacent about anti-Semitism than they are about homophobia or racism or transphobia because it doesn't seem like there's any risk with it. I think a lot of people, consciously or not, think of Jews as wealthy, uh, secure in society, well-educated. But the fact is, as this attack in Pittsburgh has proven, as the attack in Paris earlier this year also proved, there's a real risk. And politicians, more than anyone, have been complacent about it and been playing on anti-Semitic language in order to gain a populist audience. So I grew up in New York City. I am Jewish. You know, you can literally buy bagels at the newsagent. You could go to the supermarket and buy Hanukkah-themed streamers and confetti. Jewishness is so assimilated into, into the American story. It's something that never felt um, under attack. It's something that you never felt you had to hide. Jews, of course, have been targeted in the past. So it's not like America is some sort of land of you know, honey for Jews. But those attacks always felt random. They felt they weren't connected to the political and social fabric of America. If you actually look at Trump's history, he's engaged in anti-Semitic tropes throughout his, uh, throughout his prominency, I'd say. And since he became president, he has taken it up a notch as he's been playing to the white supremacist crowd. And he refused to condemn his own supporters when they were bombarding the journalist Julia Yoffe with anti-Semitic abuse. He's been talking a lot about how he's against globalists. He's a nationalist, is how he describes himself. Again, anyone with a modicum of history knows that nationalist generally refers to um, a, a political system that is not so good to Jews, shall we say. And that's the point with Trump, is he sends out these, you know, to use the cliche, dog whistles, and anti-Semites pick up on it. Talking about things like globalists, cabals of money, dark money, power structures, even though they're using this language, I think a lot of us never thought it would translate into danger against us. It's happened now, and I think American Jews, for the first time in their lives in America, feel like America is not a safe place for them anymore. Trump has ramped up divisive rhetoric, um, encouraging the idea of that there's a them and an us. And as I said, he has played on anti-Semitic tropes. So yes, I entirely blame Trump for this. I lay this entirely at his feet. You can read Hadley's column online at theguardian.com. That's it for today. Subscribe to the podcast. And if you like, leave us a review. My thanks to Hadley Freeman, James McGrory, and to Joe Tricky on the People's March, a belated happy birthday to you. The producers were Josh Kelly, India Rackerson, Leia Green and Max Sanderson. The executives were Phil Maynard and Nicole Jackson. Sound design by Axel Cacoutier.
Enjoy the fireworks. See you tomorrow.